Thank you so much for your precious time. This is the Critical Care Commute podcast, where we talk to the widest range of experts relevant to acute care medicine. This is Peter Brindley, a critical care physician, somewhat opinionated, hopefully just the right side of provocative professor at the University of Alberta Hospital. And I'm Leon Baker, uh, the unlikely introverted podcaster and critical care physician working out in the community in Edmonton, Canada. By the way, you can claim continuous professional development points for these. Uh, Go check out your local college's website. Step-by-step instructions for the Canadians on the website. Thank you so much. This is Peter. We're always incredibly grateful for your time. I don't know where this discussion is going to go, but I do know it's going to be powerful, and it's for me, even if it's not for you. It's my dear friend, Elliot Sprague. Elliot is an internist at the Grey Nuns Hospital, exactly where Leon works, but more than anything, he's the internist internist. He is the guy I remember working with 10, 15 years ago. Uh, Those people just stand out, and... Why don't you take it from here, Elliot? You have gone through some health stuff that nobody should have to and most people couldn't manage, and you still seem to be just the same ridiculously cheerful, magnificent (laughs) specimen of a man that you always were. And we're sitting in your kitchen at the moment, surrounded by all of your beautiful art and your kids' art and all the sorts of projects that families do together, pictures on the wall, and it's glorious to be here, and I'm rambling on. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. This is, um, I've never done anything like this. This is actually very, very cool. Well, where do we jump into this? Elliot, healthcare providers are used to providing healthcare rather than receiving it. You've gone through some stuff and uh, teach us. Yeah, it was, um, it was quite a shock because I'd been kind of staff physician maybe four or five years. And then last summer, started noticing more fatigue, more short of breath. Turns out my hemoglobin was very low and it was low because I was having a metastatic malignancy in my, right in my ileocecal junction that um, was causing me all these problems. It was a shocking diagnosis because I'd felt relatively well up to then, no health problems whatsoever, never taken a medication, no family history of it. And then from there, it was quite a, quite a change, quite a journey because you... I've never spent a night in hospital and it was quite a experience to be suddenly a patient and have folks look after you and then to suddenly be dealing with cancer while working. I tried to keep working as much as I could. So you're working, you're on chemotherapy, you have this diagnosis that you're reconciling and it has been quite an experience between then until now. So help me, help us get the balance right. We don't want to turn this into some sort of Oprah Winfrey woo-woo, let's all hold hands and sob. Yeah. But at the same time... You know, we introduce a lot of people because of the length of their CV and their last 12 New England Journal papers. And we all know (laughs) that isn't the only thing that matters in life. What matters is eight-year-old Archer, six-year-old Macy, Danielle, who you just described as your... Forever person. Forever person, exactly. See, I can't even say things like that. They don't come out of my lips. Um, You know, what's it like being on the other side? So I, we can imagine how, how challenging it is, but um, one of, the, one of the, the things that have made it a lot easier and a lot more empowering was to become more engaged with my health. It, there's a lot, of, a lot of helplessness when you're sick. And I found that when I became more involved, more engaged and more present with my illness, it, it added a lot more strength than I had expected. And as a result, I was able to stay working, stay exercising and stay present and joyful because the, your illness wasn't the main thing that you have. 
And that was a huge change was to keep my passions in the forefront. So I kept skating as best I could, kept playing hockey during my diagnosis, during treatment. I was probably the slowest guy in the ice, sweating like crazy because you're full of chemotherapy, but it was huge. It was huge. It made a, a, a massive difference spending time like that. And as I became more involved with my own care and put more effort into what I'm eating and how I move my body, the stronger I felt. And that's been a huge, huge change between this, the way I deal with the diagnosis and the way I deal with my, my patients and the way I can help them. So, so let's go deeper down into that one. You know, it, it affects the mind and the spirit, but it affects the body. And clearly you've done a lot to keep agency and a sense of upbeatness in all of those areas. You know, a lot of the time, let's, let's be frank, we look at patients and, and just see it as a workload rather than a person with a full life and that ought to be engaged with and ought to be thought of as somebody who isn't just in the hospital that lives a full life and has joys and has fears. And can you give me that sense of, uh, you know, how do we remember that there is a father there, there is a mother there, there is somebody who plays hockey, lives outside of the hospital and isn't just this sort of, I don't know, paperweight that gets moved through our system? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a fantastic question. And the way that I can just sort of speak for myself, the way that I found the, the experience more empowering and added strength was when I would put the illness into a context. So now when I meet people who have cancer, especially young folks, we're seeing it more and more and more. I'd ask them, what is this? What, what are you going to miss when you can't get out of bed anymore? What are you going to say goodbye to? What are you going to fear the most when your life is going to end? And that is incredible, the answers that you get. And when I had to ask myself that, it's in, it, it was amazing what came out. And you were, we were talking briefly before this about experiences you'd like to have. And I found I wasn't really gonna miss a lot of experiences. I was gonna miss a lot of the contacts, a lot of the relationships, a lot of the people. And so having these people in my life and how important my family and friends were gonna be with me gone, that was eye-opening. And when I talk to people, what they say is remarkable. The number of times they say, my, I'm going to miss my work, my job. I love it. It's my favorite thing, the thought of not going there. And so when you get to put their illness, put their diagnosis into the context of what they love, the, it, I can see how empowering it is for patients. And it was incredibly life-changing for me. Yeah, it's, it's incredible, isn't it? I think we live these silly lives where we work ourselves to death and then we hit retirement and now the fun will begin or now the meaningful stuff will begin. And we talk as if, you know, if, if I got a fatal diagnosis oh well I would immediately quit work and I would go off to the pyramids and ride a camel and I think most of us won't don't I think we will hold hands with our kids walk down to the park skip stones go buy milk yeah go for a bike ride it's the the mundanities which are absolutely not mundane they're, they're profound but not tv commercial profound Exactly. Exactly. So my, my life expectancy is in question. I mean, I have a non-zero chance of surviving, but it's not an integer that I would put a lot of stock into. Right. So, um, although we're all hopeful that I'll, I'll keep going through all my treatments and I'll tolerate them well, and we'll have a huge success in the end. It's the likelihood is that's not going to be the case. And so I have a finite amount of time and the way that that's changed is just becoming more present, more, more, joyful within the mundane things. I was going to take my um, son to his very first hockey, first minor hockey about a month and a half ago, loaded his gear up in the back, very excited. And he opened the front door and sat down. I said, 
oh, don't, you're eight. Don't you sit in the back? He's like, no, no, I sit here now. I was like, all right, okay, sweet. And he picked the music then and we drove and that's what we do. The only time he rides in the front is when we go to hockey and the joy, the, the depth of that joy is incredible. And for me, that, that joy is deeper than going to see something incredible I've never seen before, going to have an experience I've never had before. That, that connection with the people around me has been incredible and much deeper, much more profound. Absolutely. So, I mean, the, the rule of facts are adenocarcinoma, peritoneal carcinomatosis, several rounds of chemo. You know, that's the medical blob. And let's now stop using those words sure. and start talking about stuff that actually matters. So how, how do you refocus on the fundamentals, the things that actually mind that matter you know is is mindfulness just a trick a toy or is it actually something meaningful is it things that suburbanites with nothing to worry about and first world problems do because it sounds trendy or is there actually something deeply and eternally soulful about being there with your thoughts and working through them yeah it's very very powerful and I was lucky enough to have discovered a lot of the mindfulness practices many years ago. And so how, how, how useful they've been through this last year, year and a half of the journey has been remarkable. And so if there's an aside for mindfulness itself, I'm a huge mindfulness advocate. I did a, a grand rounds on mindfulness that was, that was very um, well received. And it was, I found a lot of joy doing it because when I discovered a lot of these, a lot of these mind, these brain patterns that we get into where our brains are always looking for problems or, always keeping us up at night because the, the thoughts never stop and how frustrating and challenging that can be when I bring that up now with my patients or on the principal teaching position. So I get a lot of interaction with residents. When I bring this up to residents, they'll email me for months, sometimes even years later saying how powerful these things were because they just didn't know. They didn't realize that you have a way of sorting out these negative thoughts and sort of managing these we have nothing to worry about, but we always have worries mm -hmm. and you can start to recognize that. And there's a way out of it and you can start to live more joyfully and more present. And there's nothing like an illness to force you into that. So fortunately I was already on that journey and this is just sort of solidified, I guess, and crystallized a lot of those. And so I'm a huge believer and a huge supporter of it. So I remember being taught there's more suffering in the imagination than in reality, but you know, you're dealing with a lot. We've, We've used the mindfulness buzzword mm -hmm. and you've debunked its buzzwordiness. <laughs> let's talk about spirituality. Heck, let's even dare to talk religion. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And the the connection that you have with some sort of spirit is, is huge, right? I'm not to say that you can't have mindfulness practices, you can't have meditation practices without it, but I was raised with no religious affiliation whatsoever. I've always... Other than hockey, by the way. Other than hockey, exactly, so. exactly. That's more of a national uh, religion <laughs> than anything else. And so I never had a lot of... I didn't, I didn't pay a lot of attention to it, but um, it's really more the energy that I believe in. Just the, the way, there's a book I read and one of the quote was, why was, um, why do we go through all this work of life? Like, why does life exist? What's the purpose of this? Why would nature go through all this effort to create all this stuff? And it was how the energy of the universe expresses itself. I thought there was a lot of beauty there. And when you read about from the Big Bang and how it, what it takes to make all the, all the elements that make us, it has to be from exploding stars. Like we're made from yeah, stars. It is incredible. It's incredible. It? And it's so incredible that, 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 that flow of energy that's, that kind of connects all the people and all the matter in the world is incredible. And when you, when you pass away, you just return to the energy. And so you just get to come back as energy. It's a beautiful thing. Yeah. And the, the, the idea of stardust causing consciousness and stardust allowing you to fall in love and, and all of those ideas. I mean, that's, I love my science, 
I truly do. But that's where it it loses its oomph. You know, that's where it, it doesn't have all the answers and, and to go on the journey. And you might still think like a scientist as you go on that spiritual journey. But uh, there is more than is just provided in the four walls of a hospital and the four walls of a chemistry lab, which brings us nicely on to oncology. What do they do well? What don't they do so well? As an ICU doc, I am sure a number of us are jaundiced here and we think, oh God, they must pump them full of so much sunshine when they go there to oncology. Because when a patient comes to the ICU and they meet a grumpy, burnt out bugger like me, I, I start from square one of really nobody's talked to you about this might not go so well. Yeah, I think that's that's an experience that lots of folks and lot, lots of physicians have when you're um when you're caught off guard by your interpretation, your impression of what a patient's diagnosis is going to be and their interpretation, their impression of what their diagnosis is, it's, it can be very discrepant at times. And so the, the experience of becoming a physician who deals with cancer lots, and it's usually the very beginning of cancer as an internist and then the very end of cancer and becoming part of the, the oncology world as a, as a physician throughout my practice and now as a patient has been truly eye-opening. So the specific questions about what they do well and what they think could use some work, what they do well is they are very positive. They're extremely supportive, very loving. I didn't know what to expect for my for first appointment. Even when I'm getting my first chemo, I kept looking behind like, surely they're talking about someone else. I can't believe this is still me. I can't believe I'm about to have all this happen. And the love that they give you is incredible. Um, they'll connect, they'll follow you every step of the journey and they won't say goodbye to you. They won't kick you out. That's a very, it feels it's, it's empowering and it feels good. But the over discussions of how short your life is expected to be, how long you're going to live, um, can be neglected. I'm not really, it's hard to say why I, I suppose, but that's something that I've experienced and I've seen as a physician as well. You know what the, the loving word I'm Glad you brought it up, and I think it's an incredibly important one because we, as ICU docs, can be incredibly, and, and internists, can be incredibly transactional. Sort of, I'm here to talk to you about machines. Machines aren't for you. I got nothing more to talk to you about. Mm -hmm. you know? and, I, and I think there is a sense that we have to address the darn person behind there and their hopes and their fears and their dreams and their wants, not just our machines. Absolutely. But I would say that this is where the shortcoming for the cancer world comes into play. This is where I feel I found a big, a lack that, that was harmful to my health and mm. harmful to my, to my overall um, interaction with cancer. And that is, these are our treatments and this is where our treatments stop and there is nothing else. And that was remarkable. And so we have these drugs, we'll give you this drug and give you that drug. And when the drugs stop, there's nothing else. So the view, the, the view of treatment is very narrow. It's not wrong. These drugs do really help, but they don't give you anything else. And the world of cancer can be so much greater. There can be so many more things that you can do. So it's, it's not a, it was limited and narrow, I suppose, in the end. And that's where the, the challenge comes in. So let's talk about the other stuff then, because if it matters to the patient, it matters. On the other hand, we shouldn't be flinging around vitamins and or potentially toxic drugs if they are potentially toxic drugs. So you don't want to take away somebody's hope, but you do want to engage them. And science doesn't have all the answers. Have you noticed I've got none of the answers either? Um, you know, how do we find that balance? Because clearly a guy like yourself, agency matters, engagement matters, being heard matters. And for goodness sake, you're the 
well, you've always been the most handsome person around this table, but you're also, you look like the fittest person around this table as well. Yeah, but I think if, but if you saw a year ago though, I, I wasn't putting the same kind of effort into that fitness and that, that strength that's held because I was told you had to eat lots, eat as much as you can, put on as much weight as you can. The guidance that you get besides chemo is just don't lose weight. And that was narrow. United. There wasn't a single coffee break in the uh, doctor's lounge at the Grey Nuns Hospital where I didn't walk away if you were there without learning something. And one of the things that uh, that struck me was your engagement or getting your patients engaged. And, and um, do you want to tell us a little bit more about that? Because I think you have a very proud history of never discharging a patient or, or always discharging a patient every single day. Yeah, absolutely. So the... Um the, I think that the discharging ends up being something of a, of a byproduct, I guess, or a result of sort of early engagement with patients. And so one of the practices I, I found was very effective and came quite, quite natural was explaining the diagnosis to a patient, explaining what the treatment goals are. And then I would say, this is what's going to get you out of hospital. So for example, if it's pancreatitis, I'm going to say, this is the expect it's going to be painful. We're going to slowly reintroduce your diet. But once you can drink two liters of fluid and your pain is controlled with oil medication, that's when we're going to get you out. Hopefully it takes this long, but if it's sooner, great. And I tell their, tell their family, tell people at the bedside and say, that's our goal. We're going to keep hustling for it. And every day, how's it going? You had to, that's fantastic. Let's keep going. We're doing great. Tomorrow's going to be the day. I know it for sure. And sure enough, when the day comes, they're excited. You find yourself very mm-hmm. rarely having to push people out of hospital and um, they're enthusiastic and they feel like they really accomplished something because they really did. They really did accomplish. When I was in hospital, suddenly as a, as a patient, you're waiting for pain control. You're in agony and you're just waiting for someone to come by and give you pain medication. If you leave your room and start hassling at the desk, you, sir, please go back to your room. Like, the doctor will be with you eventually. And so you feel very, very fragile, mm-hmm. very, very helpless. Mm-hmm. And when, as a, as a patient, you can make people feel more engaged and more, more hopeful and more helpful. The differences are incredible mm-hmm. and they leave hospital faster and I feel they leave hospital stronger and more proud. Mm-hmm. And I know I, I feel proud of what I've accomplished now having this diagnosis and the changes that I've made with my life. So how strong I feel, I feel very strong. I feel good. Yeah. Proud. Yeah. That you should be, you know, that, that, that brings me to the second point because you, you have obviously been very engaged in this diagnosis and seeking, you know, different ways of thinking about it and such the way that you speak to, to patients perhaps, or counsel them, has that changed at all since your diagnosis? If I may, if I may ask. Yeah, absolutely. It, it really has. It really has. So I see, again, like I, we alluded to earlier, the number of people I see with cancer is huge. And it's becoming a more and more ever-present part of our life as our ability to diagnose cancer goes up, but the cancer rates are climbing. And so we're seeing more and more of it, and we're seeing more and more of it in younger folks or populations where you wouldn't expect to see it or shouldn't think you should see it. Oh, this person's only in the 2030s. How could this be? And the way I interact with them has changed. And the the changes, the specific changes have been to tell them to learn and read about their cancer. It's, it's incredible. Cancer is such a complicated disease, but it's fascinating. And the idea that you can take this emperor of all maladies and narrow it down to four drugs that kill it. And if they don't work, you die. The, that paradigm has to shift. I did not engage in that paradigm in the first go round and my cancer spread despite eight cycles of chemotherapy. It spread so fast. It's almost a medical miracle how quickly it moved. So I thought, okay, I was not engaged. I'm going to be engaged now and learning about this complex disease with all the different aspects of how angiogenesis works. And how do you block angiogenesis? It's incredible the different things that you have. The nutrition in your home that changes mm-hmm, it. The mm-hmm. TED Talks on angiogenesis, fascinating. How does 
cancer consume energy. The metabolic changes in cancer are remarkable. The way it processes sugar is in no way the same as our human cells. And the way it upregulates and can block our immune system, recruit our immune system against us, it's incredible. And so that's what makes it strong. But each one of those points is also what makes it weak because you can give it things that hurt the cancer without hurting yourself. And I can already, I can already see the benefit both with my, the discomfort that I had from the cancer, but also with how strong my body feels. And we'll see, I got a scan coming up in six weeks. We'll see if it is doing anything to the cancer, but I know that it's doing good things for my body for sure. Right. And um, if I, if I may ask, um, has your, the way that you think about, you know, critical illness in somebody with an advanced or stage four or very advanced cancer, has that changed at all? Um, I mean, it's easy for us in critical care to say, well, look, you're in your 70s, you've got an advanced cancer, you're not coming to the ICU. Has that, has that changed at all? I mean, given, given all the, you know, the it, other considerations? Yeah, it has. It has actually, because the way I'd always counseled patients with stage four disease, we would see a lot. I would never let them leave as an R anything. Mm-hmm. So you mm-hmm. had to have that goals of care discussion. The idea of putting someone on a ventilator who has a cancer that can't be treated just sounded always so cruel. So you'd have that discussion. And I'd always be very frank about how poor the diagnosis was stage four disease. Stage four basically means no cure. That's what we're taught in med school, it's what we're taught in residency. And I would never shy away from those discussions. And I'd say, I may not be able to help you with everything, but I promise I will be incredibly honest with you. Mm. And as long as I'm here, I will be there for you and with you. But the truth is, this is a very bad diagnosis and you're mm-hmm. likely not going to survive. So do your end of life stuff. Tell people how much you love them. Do the things that you always wanted to do. Make sure your will's in order and get ready to, to say goodbye and power mm-hmm. down. And I always thought that's how I can show love and how I can show care. Mm-hmm. We'll still treat you as many things as we can. We'll give you all the treatments that we have available, but we have to know that we're really not aiming for a cure. So this is how you say goodbye. And that's changed because we don't always have to be saying goodbye to stage, stage four disease. We really don't. And who knows, I may not be here for the, the, this edition in a year or two, but if I am, I'm gonna keep speaking about this because I'm very fascinated to see the way this is going to ultimately go. And telling people that you can keep fighting. Every book that I read that's not a traditional book, it's done by, they're done by physicians, they're done by researchers, but if, they, if it deviates from the norm, they say, don't give up hope. And I always thought that that was something that you would say because you're too scared to say goodbye. But they're like, you haven't given up because you haven't done much yet. You haven't made your body strong and you hadn't made the cancer weak. So just keep going. And this is what you do. It's not harming you. It'll make you stronger. And so you don't have to say goodbye in that same way. Do all those other things. Absolutely keep connecting with your loved ones. Do all the things for late stage diseases that you might recommend. But what I've, te- what I've been telling people lately is to just read, just read. Uh, there's a few book titles. I've just, just try this. If you're interested, give this book a read and just see how it, how it changes your perception and changes your cancer plan. So it's new. I've only been doing this for a few months now, but um, I'm interested to see the, the way this keeps going. And as I see these, these, these folks with cancer over time and the way I move over time, we'll, we'll, we'll see if there's another edition in a year or two. I hope I can uh, offer kind of different insights on it, I guess. Yeah, we, we spoke to Blair Brigham and one of the things that he mentioned was also just adding meaning or adding time for meaning. And if a period in the intensive care unit can add six weeks to somebody's life, six weeks where they could spend time with a loved one, kids go somewhere or something. And that, that certainly changed my mind um, after speaking to him. So yeah, thanks. I know, I know that was probably a difficult <laughs> question to answer. You know, my lovely, lovely mother, and I'm a mama's boy, and I may have said this on the podcast before, she taught me many things as a palliative care counsellor. One of the biggest ones was that 
humans are not much machines to fix we're gardens to tend and i think our whole system is set up as a machines to fix system and i think that's one of the reasons we let patients down because they come into our system with all its shiny lights and diodes and then we say well these are our options you don't want these options or these options don't work we've got nothing else Mm -hmm. the more we go the biotechnical model the less we are empowering people's agency and honesty and you know having just finished a week in the neuro icu all sorts of incredible medicine and a complete dearth of conversations and sitting on the side of the bed and holding a hand and talking about what matters and talking about life outside of the hospital you know i i I worry as an icu doctor that i'm going too far one way because the rest of the system has gone too far the other way in other words my lovely lady wife will listen to this podcast probably none of the others so I, I need to remain loyal, but I need to be honest. Uh, there are times with the kids where I feel I have to be the hard ass because mum's too soft. And we meet somewhere in the middle. Our ICU docs, our internists being forced to be the hard asses they don't want to be because so much of this stuff is not being talked about, about the realities of life, death, and in between. Are we burning out because we realize that our tubes and machines are not what a lot of people want at end of life? They want connection. Mm-hmm. They want memories. They want meaning, as as Leon's quite rightly pointed out. Yeah, absolutely. That, that had been part of my practice that's basically just deepened since this diagnosis and over this last um, year, year and a half or so. And I like to say to my patients, I make a point of always bringing it up, even if I'm short on time. I always tell them I try and prescribe as many meditations as I do medications. Mm. And when they bring up something to do with sleep, they always bring up sleep. Sleep's such a problem. They say, I can't sleep. Or on their fourth, fifth medication for sleep. And I always say that pills don't teach skills. So let's just talk about why you can't sleep and just, just grazes across the surface of some mindfulness practices and some, again, some empowering things that they can start to do. And those have been huge for patient connection. The patients themselves are the ones who are now hugging me on their way out the door and they feel strong. Their stay was the same. Their health in the end was the same when they left hospital. Length of stay was probably the same, but the way they feel when they leave is different. And I guess that's where I'm coming from. I think we need these little boluses of humanity more than we need these little boluses of norepinephrine. Yeah, We yeah. need these little seemingly insignificant one-liners or I'll grab you a cup of tea or, hey, what would you be doing if you weren't here right now? You'd be fishing. Tell me about that. I don't know much about fishing. And you allow the patient to be the expert for once rather than just the recipient of your of your pig latin words you know how do we get that humanity back in a meaningful way we're going to be talking to deb cook in a few weeks and i'm very excited to do so she's brought in this superb three wishes program at end of life the only problem i have with it is that we've medicalized it you know you don't need to call something three wishes you just do this for somebody because they're a fellow human being How do we get humanity, well, heck, into society, let alone the hospitals, but especially the hospitals? I think we need to start modeling it. So I was lucky enough to be your learner for years. And I, the what I... Yeah, you've got to also, you do learn from how not to do things. I, the the humility is is amazing, but you um, changed the course of my medical trajectory. I encountered you my R2 year through my time in ICU. Well, I saw you interacting with incredibly sick people and their families like this at a very impressionable time early in my residency. And it changed the way I practiced to this very day. And that engagement is something that 
if we keep modeling it as physicians, our young learners, they're at their absolute most impressionable. And the emails that I get from learners are about not a single thing that I taught them medical, not a single one, but they say, I switched to internal medicine because I saw you do this. I have never forgotten that interaction that you had with that patient when we were busy, whatever. It was minutes, maybe five or six minutes. It doesn't add a ton of time to your day, but I feel the weight and the power of it is profound. And I saw it as a learner from incredible people like you, Dr. Brindley, and now getting to model it for my learners, I think that's how we will slowly change the, add that humanity back to our, to our healthcare system. Well, Dr. Sprague, um, you brought up some other important points. Let's pivot to those. You know, we often don't know when we've touched somebody else or, or had a significant moment with somebody else. I, I think it rests on us too to send little messages and, hey, that really made a difference. And, hey, I thank you for doing that. Because I think the person doing it is unaware and, the you know, you won't keep doing it. There are so many impetuses in our system to be efficient, not empathic. Mm. There are so many stimuli in our system to, you know, be forthright, but not open and bilateral in communication. Or even to just give time like this for the awkwardness of human interactions. You know, I, I have in a lot of situations thought, I don't know how the next half an hour is going to go, but it's definitely worth half an hour. So let's just go on a journey here. Rather than I see a lot of med students and residents say, what should I say? Mm-hmm. What's my script? What are my one-liners? And I'd argue it's the absolute opposite. Just go in with no script and use your humanity because I promise you it'll get you through. And even if you can't find your words, in fact, your process of not finding your words will come across as more genuine. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. So the... That's my excuse for uh, being stumbly, by the way, with my questions today, Elliot. No, it's, again, it adds a, a human element that, that, that doctor-patient relationship is something that can be very, it can be detrimental in a lot of ways, and it does lack humanity. So when I speak with a patient, I never stand. The first thing I do is always find a chair. And it's not because, oh, I want to connect with them. I genuinely enjoy my interaction more when I'm getting to sit with them and chat with them. So I say, oh, hold on, there's no chair. Just like, I'm going to go grab a chair. Oh, doctor said, no, 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 it's no problem. I'll grab a chair. All right. Ah, I take a deep breath and I chat. It doesn't take long, but it is incredibly joyful. And I love my job. I love it to its absolute core. The idea of finding work stressful just doesn't, just doesn't resonate with me because I love it so deeply. And I often get asked why that is, why you like this so much, how you, it gives me energy. It gives me, it gives me strength and it gives me I can barely sleep when I'm on service. I get so excited to get in the hospitals <laughs> and it sounds so ridiculous, but it's because it's such a joyful experience. You can make it so, so positive. I'll cry with my patients when they get bad news. I cry when my patients pass away. I hug nurses who are struggling. I let my patients hug me when they, wanna, when they want that connection. And it makes that human connection huge. I can't always say how that impacts the patients, but I can definitely say how it impacts me. And it's in a very positive way. And adds a lot of joy to my work. Sounds like it goes back to the agency thing, though, again. You know, you can look at the job, I don't know, like a plate of food. You can look at it as a whole bunch of calories to be avoided like an anorectic would. Or you can look at it as a gourmand who thinks, this is incredible, what an opportunity. You know, I I like science, I love people. Some days that equation flips the other way. But to be able to combine the two together, you know, the, the joyous parts of the job are connecting with patients, colleagues, friends, or ideas. And it's an incredible journey we get to go on. It is, it's the sort of human experience distilled down and ramped up. So I 
I'm not going to talk you out of saying it's a fantastic job because it is. And in fact, even when it's not and you're miserable or grumpy, which I definitely am at times, I feel like that's the therapy. You know, the grumpiness is actually in its strange way doing its own little bit of work on me. Elliot, you're a glorious man. I know that. Tell me about the little Elliots. Tell me about, tell me about Archer, Macy. Tell me about Danielle. Oh yeah. How are people doing? They're, they're. And by the way, you've got the broadest grin on your face yeah. right now. It's a shame <laughs> this is recorded rather than on video. Uh, they're, um, they're all in, they're all remarkable, remarkable people um, in no particular order. My son, Archer, he's eight and this is his first year playing organized hockey and he loves all hockey to his core. It's something that he encountered only in his last couple of years. I think maybe it's because he watched us, watches us watch hockey, heard about his friends playing hockey, but he absolutely loves it. And so seeing someone who's so joyful about hockey is an incredible thing, but he's also a really big feeler. He's an old soul. It's incredible. And it's, it, it allows him to connect to things like hockey in such a meaningful way. Time he spends with his friends are, are very meaningful. I can see he doesn't want to, he wants to connect with his buddies. It's, a, it's amazing. He helps his buddies who are nervous about swimming off the big diving board. He, he had all this love, but he also has huge feelings. And it's amazing. He'll be like, I feel really scared right now. And I'll be like, tell me about that. He's like, I don't know. I feel like something bad's going to happen. I think, is it because is it of this? Is it because I'm nervous about this? I don't know. It's your thoughts, man. It's your thoughts. It's okay. And he used to say, Dad, I'm scared. I was like, you're not scared, Archer. You feel scared. Ooh. You're Archer. And Archer is the awareness that scared is there. And so we started to name scared and be like, oh, scared's back. And it was amazing. The, the difference that he had, he's like, oh, scared's back. I can feel it. I was like, okay. How long does he stay for? Oh, he always goes away. It's like, yeah, he's going to be here. He's going to go. That's okay. It's all right. We'll just wait it out. God, Guru Sprague, this is... I told you, not a day goes... No chat goes by without learning something from this guy. Can you be my dad? Um, tell us tell us about... It's Macy, right? Macy, yeah. Macy, sorry. And Macy's... A, the most amazing thing about my daughter, Macy, is that she is so present. She is... Archer thinks... He thinks all about the past. He thinks about the future. He thinks wide. He thinks about the world. Macy is right here right now it's she she never knows what time it is she never knows any of that stuff she is, lives completely joyfully and completely present and she engages so deeply in what she's doing it's it was mind-boggling she never cared about toys never cared about any of her stuff archer has stuffy collections he has bobblehead collections he has hockey collections Mesa doesn't collect anything she's not she's so present and she views herself as so complete that items things you have they don't add any meaning to her life because Maisie's already so much Maisie, and so she feels huge but her feelings pass quickly. And so to stay present with her is actually a big practice because she's right here all the time. It's unbelievable to witness. Now, we all adore our wives here. Um, Danielle, nurse, met her across a clouded urinal. I mean, how does Actually, she- yeah, would, yeah, right, exactly, right? Yeah. She, I, she was a unit clerk and I was used to be a porter. I was a porter at the U of A Emerge. That was one of my first jobs back when I was in college. So I was doing my undergrad and I was a orderly porter, but bombing people around the uh, emergency room. And she was a unit clerk, putting herself through nursing school. And that's actually how we met. And she was finishing up nursing. I graduated from my undergrad and we spent a summer together. She's like, well, what are you going to do? You have a science degree. I was like, oh, I don't know. I'm just going to hang out. She's like, well, have you ever thought of applying to med school? I was like, oh, nobody gets into med school. You got to write an MCAT, got to do a whole thing. She's like, no, give it a shot. Why don't we just, why don't we just spend one year, study, write your MCAT, see how it goes. Yeah. And I said, all right. She's like, you don't have to spend 
a decade trying just just try this one one year start studying at the end of summer and right at this fall so i did i did just that the application process as you may recall from med school is huge the mcat mm-hmm. takes forever to study for it's a whole thing yeah it's just to try and put you off i think is the That's main right. purpose of the end it seems like a monolithic thing to try and are you a stubborn jerk? That's uh, what the MCAT's all about. That's right. Oh, and by the way, that'll be three thousand dollars, sir. Yeah, no, exactly. So there's a lot of a lot of reasons not to do it that I had more than talked myself out of even considering. Um, and she said, "No, just just try it. You have the degree. Why not?" And so I wrote my MCAT. I did my application. Got all my letters, and I got in. I got in. I got in in Alberta, but I also got in um, in BC. We're BC boys. We're you BC and me boys. That was my home. Uh, that was my home province. And so when I got into UBC, I asked if she wanted to come with me. I'd only known her for a little less than a year, maybe eight months. I said, "Do you want to come to Vancouver?" She's like, "Yeah, sounds like a fun adventure." So she started working at VGH, and I uh, started my, my studies. And then we got married while I was there. And yeah, I couldn't wait to come back to Alberta because I actually love. I love Alberta. I absolutely love the blue sky. I was never a rain guy, but I. Love this problem. I couldn't wait to come back. You got no problem with the cold? No, doesn't bother me at all. Because ponds freeze and you can fire you can a puck up. <laughs> you can skate. That's right. I think this is a glorious place too. Um, not because of the weather, because of the people, because of the common sense, because of the tenacity, because of the strength, because of the agency, and all the things you've just exemplified. Um, going, Leon? Man, I'd never walk away without learning something from you. <laughs> This has been a, really an amazing chat. Thank you for your time. Thank you for your your home, opening it up to us. Uh, please do excuse all the clicks and bobs and noises and things. And this was a, this was an incredible chat. There's a lot of love in this room. There's a lot of yeah. love that you give and, and, and to your patients, your family, obviously. You know, and It does remind me, though, of a uh, very old book that is a bestseller that reminds us to love our neighbor. And, and you <laughs> certainly exemplify that. So thank you. Thanks for having us, man. The health information offered on the Critical Care Commute podcast and the resources available for download through the podcast and show notes is provided for general informational and educational purposes only. It is not intended as a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment.